Well, thank you very much, Chris. You guys are at New Day Vine Campus. And as Chris mentioned, new thing I'm trying suggested by my wife. I actually put the notes on the back of the of the bulletin. I don't know why I didn't think of that like a year and a half ago, but I didn't. So all the single gentlemen, so many good ideas are coming your way when you get married. It is amazing. All right. All the single guys. Well, two weeks ago, we started a series on emotions. And I made some points about emotions. And I said that you've got emotions and God's got emotions and emotions are good. Right? But unlike God's emotions, our emotions are what we call fallen. Everything has been tainted, touched by evil entering the world. And that is mankind's fault. So just like every other aspect of our lives... Emotions weren't untouched by this. So our emotions are sometimes wonky. God's emotions are never wonky because God is perfect and he's good and he's holy. So unlike God, we have to think about what are we feeling? Are we feeling the right thing? Are we doing the right thing with it? Am I feeling this in the right intensity? So many questions. And therapists exist because our emotions and our psyches are all fallen imperfect things. We mentioned that we have to manage our emotions. And we mentioned that God's call to perfection and holiness is holistic. It involves our whole life. Not only what we do, but what we think about, and even our emotions. But God's promise to give us abundant life is also holistic. He wants us to have life in our emotions and our psyches. That was week one in about four minutes, I think, which is pretty good. Week two, we talked about the first of God's three emotions that we're going to talk about, we talked about the jealousy of God. We talked about how God is jealous for his image. He wants to be thought of correctly. He's jealous for his reputation. He's jealous for his standing as God. He wants your worship. He wants you to treat him like the most important thing that there is because he is. And today, we're going to talk about the anger of God. Now, I want to give a... I don't know if this would be, it's, it's not an excuse, that's the wrong word, that makes it sound like I'm, I'm sorry to talk about this. I want to give a, a reason why it's important to talk about things like the anger of God. Why do we talk about that? Why can't I just get up here every week and just talk about how loving God is and everything's going to be okay, God's love, he's compassionate, he's loving, he's compassionate, over and over and over again, forever till I die. And there's a reason for that. One, that is not a credible way, in my opinion, to preach. Because there's more to the Bible and there's more to God than just that. Towards the end of the Apostle Paul's ministry, great missionary, wrote most of the New Testament. He's going back to Jerusalem. He does not have a bunch of friends in Jerusalem. He knows he's going back for trouble. He's already told people in the churches he's passing through. He's like, I'm going to Jerusalem, guys, and I really don't know what's going to happen to me. But the odds are good. You're not going to see this lovely face again. So I love you guys. I know you love me too. Say your goodbyes. And yes, I'm serious. He passed through Ephesus and he didn't stay there on his way to Jerusalem. But he stopped at the place and he said, call all the elders and all the deacons. Call the leaders I've put in place and I want to meet with them. And they came and they met him at this city. And he says these words. This is in Acts 20. And we're going to read kind of a long section. I do that. 17 to 28 in Acts 20. Paul says, when they arrived, he said to them, the elders, 
You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing because of the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. You see what he's doing? He's challenging these leaders. He said, in any situation, no matter how I was feeling or doing, I taught you the truth. I taught you repentance was necessary. I taught you the whole thing. Verse 22. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, big intro to this thing he's about to say. Remember how I taught you. Remember what I said. I didn't pull any punches. You're not going to see me again. So, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you. Whoa. He's saying, no matter how you guys turn out from this time on, you're not my problem. Because I told you the truth, straight up, undiluted, no chaser. You got it all. You're not going to see me anymore, and I can't be responsible for what happens to you now. For I have not hesitated, verse 27, to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So keep watch over yourselves. Paul's saying, I did a real good and thorough job when I was with you. I done taught you well. You know the whole story. You know the whole gospel. You know every aspect of it. I'm leaving now. Watch yourselves. This is the pastor's job description. It is my job to talk to you guys about some things that maybe the culture doesn't like or society talks bad about. It doesn't matter because when God calls you to be a pastor, he calls you to preach the whole message just like Paul does. And people don't really want to hear about an angry, wrathful God in this culture. And that's tough for me. Because <laughs> I still have to preach it. No, actually, it's really good. But that's why we're doing what we're doing tonight. We want to think about God correctly. Surprise. By the end of tonight, I hope you will agree with me that the fact that God is angry is actually good. And while it may be a puzzling thing to us, I hope to appreciate it as a part of his goodness and see how it connects to his love. God said... He's love. He wasn't lying just because he gets angry. I was so furious at Keith yesterday. No, I'm just kidding. I really wasn't. But I have been mad at Keith. And Keith, do I get mad at you sometimes? You can say yes on the tape. It's fine. Say it out loud. Yeah. Yes. Okay. But do I love you crazy? Yes. Yes. Okay. Awesome. There we go. Are you embarrassed? No. Okay. Good. That's going to happen in the next couple of years or so. I'm glad it hasn't, glad it hasn't yet. No. Not at all. All right. Big point number one. God's wrath comes from his love, and in a weird way, it actually makes him 
lovable. What do I mean by that? Do I mean that God's wrath and his anger makes him like a teddy bear? No. But Pastor Cameron, my boss, senior pastor, capital C, challenged the whole church a couple years ago when he talked on anger, and he said, you wouldn't love a God that wasn't angry, and neither would I. And I thought that was crazy talk. And then he preached the message, and I was like, oh, yeah, you're right. I wouldn't. Let's do an exercise. This might be kind of emotional. We're going to talk about some heavy emotional stuff in the next few minutes. So you can distance yourself from the second part, but this part's all you. Okay? So don't look around, but think about something that was really God-awful. Awful. I mean, was there a time that a tragedy struck? Was, you know, I mean, I'm thinking big picture, and I don't mean to make light of it. The point is something bad happened to you or to your situation that was not your fault. You were the victim, either of another person or a circumstance. All right? I've had some things happen to me in my life that I did not ask for. Not truly horrible things, but definitely some things I don't appreciate. And there's no one to blame in particular. It's the circumstance. And it made me angry. And it made me sad. And I've talked to other people who have had nightmarish things happen to them in their life that they didn't ask for, they didn't want, they didn't solicit this tragedy. It just happened to them. Hold that thing in your mind. You don't have to get too close. Just recognize what it is. And let me ask you a question. Would you love a God that wasn't angry or sad for you? Would you love a God that said, that's life? Get over it. I don't care. And neither should you. I don't think I would. I think I would wonder what kind of monster was up there. Some kind of stoic, distant, unlovable thing. Stay in that well, actually, you're all free from that exercise now. Okay, we're shaking it off. Don't stay in that place. I want to talk about this even more pointedly, but I want to talk about it using a fictional story, okay? So we can distance ourselves from it a little bit because this is heavy. But I talked about God's love a couple months ago, and this is quite possibly one of the most brilliant things the Lord has ever shown me. And this is from John Grisham's book, made into a movie in 1996, A Time to Kill. Anybody seen that? John Grisham novel, Only My Mom? Okay, awesome. In 1984, John Grisham was a working man. He wasn't the famous novelist he is now. And he was sitting in a courthouse, and he was blindsided by the testimony of a 12-year-old girl who had been raped. Okay? We're getting real real right now, so it's going to be kind of sensitive. And it changed him on the inside. And he spent the next three years writing a novel just exploring all the emotions of the situation and what would have happened if the father took action. He was captivated by it. So he wrote this story, A Time to Kill. In the story, a dad has his 10-year-old daughter raped by two white supremacists, beaten up. They try to hang her. They fail. She's horribly mangled, can't have kids, barely survives. Okay? And he goes to his buddy, who happens to be a lawyer, and white. And he's getting advice about what he should do. And this lawyer says, don't do anything stupid, you know? But then the father of the girl, the African-American father, says, you know what? In that neighboring town a year ago, four white men raped a little black girl. And the lawyer says, yeah. And he says, they got off. And his white lawyer friend is like, yeah. Yeah, they did. 
Let me ask you a question. This is serious, and I, I don't really apologize for it, but I respect it. What do we think about the judge in the neighboring town, a white judge, who knows that the four white guys raped a child and acquits them anyway? What are some traits or characteristics we might assign to that judge? You can go ahead and shout stuff out. Feel free. What was that? Prejudice? Okay. Anybody else? Shady. Shady. Evil. Evil. All right. Anything else? Weak, unjust, awesome, corrupt. Shady, prejudiced, weak, evil, unjust, corrupt. Did you have something? No? Um, What's that? Also afraid, possibly. Good, good. But you know what none of us said? Loving. None of us said that the judge was loving because he just didn't want those people to experience the consequences of what they'd done. Nobody said, oh, he's just merciful. That judge is gracious. That judge must be so compassionate. None of us said that. Well, this father realizes what's happening, and these two white men are going to go before a white judge in his town. This is in Mississippi, in the deep south. And so he's like, I know what I'm going to do. I know what I have to do. And when they're walking up the stairs in the courtroom to be arraigned, he comes out of the basement with an M16 and guns him down right there in the courthouse in cold blood, premeditated, didn't even try to escape. Now, this is not a perfect analogy to God, okay? Because that's murder any way you cut it, all right? But let me ask you this question. What motivated that act of vengeance? Justice and? Love. Whoa! Justice motivated by love. That was a heavy analogy. But do we see what just happened there? We have a person who withheld consequences and we called him evil. I didn't say that and I didn't ask the person that called that out to say it. And we have a person that took vengeance and we said he was driven by love. We're going to rethink God's anger tonight. Is that okay? Let's do it from the point of view of the people that need a hero. Let's do it from the point of view of God's children in a corrupt world. You know, when I watched Pale Horse, Pale Rider, and Clint Eastwood rode silently into that little mining town, I didn't say, gosh, I don't like him. He seems angry. I was like, you get them, Clint. I was like, they're bad. You're good. They're abusing people. Let's get those guns out. Why are you taking so long? Can you say something, please? Let's get this over with, right? Same deal when I'm watching Terminator 2, man. Yes, I just admitted that from the Paul, but that is fine. There's that scene where they're locked up in the lab, right? And they got the SWAT guys coming in with the guns and they're going to kill them. And there's the tear gas and they're back into the corner and they have nowhere to go and they're going to die. And you have Arnold Schwarzenegger break through the wall, give them gas masks and start capping the opposition. And you are like, yes, go get them. And he's not killing people because John Connor already told him he couldn't do that. Anybody remember that part? So good. He's shooting everybody in the knee. But you're like, lay waste to those guys. Get him. Vengeance time. None of us said, gosh, I don't like him. He's angry. <laughs> Nobody said that. Come on. When the, the rebels are zooming in on the Death Star and every single Star Wars they ever made, none of us are saying, man, they really should leave those guys alone. They don't need to experience any consequences. I wish they'd be more loving. That's crap. Nobody's saying that. You know what I mean? 
When, when we get our minds around the fact that God is good and he is just and he is the hero of the story and not the villain, when he is charging into town, not as an enemy, but on our behalf, on our behalf, if we think of ourselves not as the white supremacists, but as the girl, if we think of ourselves not as the SWAT team, but as the people caught, you know, with the tear gas all around us, encircled by our enemies, we want a God like Nahum talks about in his first chapter of his book, when he says a prophecy concerning Nineveh, really bad guys. The vision of Nahum, Elkishite. God coming to a bad, bad place. This is what he says. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger, but he is great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. His clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are shattered before him. This is Arnold breaking through the wall. This is Clint Eastwood riding into town, guys. This is the rebel fleet blowing up the Death Star. Nahum isn't writing this like, poor Nineveh. Man, he's like, that's Nineveh. They like skin people alive and nail them to pillars and stuff. Like, get over there, God. What is taking you so long? It was good that God was angry about that. If we had a God that would look at Nineveh and say, no, I'm fine with that. It's good. Like, well, how do you feel about that, Lord? No, that's not bothering me. I mean, they can do what they want. People are free. It's cool. No, 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 no. If tragedy has ever touched you, you can tap into something where you can understand how you can actually love a God that harbors anger on your behalf. Can I get an amen from somebody? Amen. Amen. But we know where the story goes. The story takes a twist. We all actually deserve God's wrath. This is the part people usually don't like. And you know what? We have to tackle it because it's true. Check this out. Paul is writing a very long letter to the Romans. He's never actually been there, so he does a pretty good job at covering a whole bunch of theology. Maybe his teaching outline, who knows? But in Romans 3, Paul says this. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, it's easy to gloss over that and think that sin is a small thing until you realize that it's the presence of sin in any of our lives that takes us out of the good, righteous, just, and holy camp and puts us in the Nineveh camp. And we want to say, whoa, foul, time out. No, 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 no. Because I've never even committed a felony. I'm not like that. That can't be true. I'm not that bad. And I found a great quote, David Guzik in his commentary on Blue Letter Bible on this verse was quoting somebody else that was really old. So I adjusted it for modern English. Here's the quote. The prostitute 
the liar and the murderer are short of it, the glory of God. But so are you. Perhaps they are at the bottom of a mine shaft and you are at the top of a mountain. But neither one of you can touch the stars. God's standards are so much higher than ours. We're, we're drawing lines of distinction between us and some really, really, really bad people. And there are those lines of distinction. And even God sees those lines of distinction, okay? He sees that. There's plenty in the Bible to say that he's not an idiot. He understands some people are worse than other people. But we've all fallen short of his glory. We've all sinned. And I've got some real bad news from the most quoted chapter in the Bible. John 3. John 3, 16. Somebody. Go ahead and shout it out. You were making a funny voice, trying to make fun of it, and now you forgot the verse. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen. Amen. You guys know what's at the end of John 3, the last verse in the chapter, John 3.36. If you read it all the way to the end, you get this verse. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. We knew that. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life. And you know why? Because God's wrath remains on them. Here's the scary picture. Was anybody here when I did the wrath bowl analogy? I had this big cooking bowl. And I was like, this is God's wrath and this is where it's falling on the table. So I'm holding this bowl upside down. And I'm like, everywhere that this bowl encircles is where God's wrath is going to fall. And then I had two helpless little Lego people. And I put it under there. And I held the bowl up and I'm like... All right, Lego people, let's get out of there. You got about five minutes and that wrath bowl's coming down. You don't want to be under this wrath. And no matter what they do or talk about or decide, they are under something that exists. They're under this bowl, the wrath bowl. I, for some reason, I thought that was really funny. So, God, <laughs> wrathful, wrath bowl, it kind of works. I wasn't going there originally, I am now. That's a hard truth, is it? Can we just acknowledge that that's hard? That's hard. That's a hard truth. You know God doesn't like that either. God likes that even less than we do, and he understands it even more. Now, God is good. Part of being good is being just. Part of being holy is hating sin. But he loves us. So he is in a spot, so to speak. God's never actually in a spot, but for the sake of of making it seem accessible, God's sitting back, and let's imagine him saying, what am I going to do? I got these creatures that I love more than life itself, and yet they're under this thing. They are under my wrath. We got to make a way to get them out of there. I instituted this sacrifice system, and every time they mess up, like my wrath and my justice are satisfied when they kill an animal, But ten minutes later, they're sinning again. Like, they're going to run out of animals. we got to solve this problem. (laughs) Before the foundation of the world, the Bible says Christ was slain. It was always a plan of redemption. God was never for a minute going to let the people he loved fall victim to his wrath with no remedy. Love makes a way, and love makes a way at its own expense. Love makes a way at its own expense. 
Romans 3.23, let's go back to that. The bad news verse, remember that? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. This is in the context not of damnation, but of salvation. Let's read the verse before and the verse afterwards. And let's do that when I'm actually in Romans and not 2 Corinthians. It'll make it far more coherent. This, is, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. He's talking about how do you get saved? How do you get righteous before God? Righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew or Gentile because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. All snap. God's plan is for everybody to be freely justified. You know... It's an amazing thing that people try to do enough to get right with God. You can never do it. Never do it in a million years. There's nothing you can do to reconcile yourself, to fix your relationship, to put you on even ground with God. And it's kind of ridiculous to even try. God's no dummy. He knows this. So he reconciled us to himself. We couldn't climb up, so he comes down. Favorite passage probably in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians 5, and we're going to read 17 all the way to the end of the chapter. Paul says this to the Corinthians. The Corinthians, by the way, pastoral side note, were what we call in modern vernacular a hot mess. Quite possibly the messiest mess in the entire New Testament, with the Galatians coming in a close second. But they were wacky. And Paul reminds them of this truth. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. Somebody who's in Christ, say, I'm a new creation. Amen. Amen. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And as he committed to us the message of reconciliation, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God loves you too much to not make a way for you to get out from under this wrath thing. This wrath thing is intended for Satan and Satan's buddies. You're never supposed to be under the bowl. Never. God made a way for you to get out. The only person that could pay the price, because the price was so darn high, to get every single person free was God himself. No one had the payload capacity for that much suffering. Nobody had the qualifications. Nobody had the perfection. Only Jesus. And God decided before he made anything that if it came down to it and I had to suffer and die myself to get these people free, that's what's happening. And so when Jesus walks to the cross and he says, I endure the cross because of the joy set before me. Paul wrote that actually. That joy is that you, Jesse, you, and you, Amanda, and you, Keith, and you, Grant, and me, and everybody in this room 
gets out from under this thing called God's wrath where you never belonged anyway. And the most respectful thing, the most just thing that we can do is to say thank you, God, and give him what he paid for, which is our lives. God's wrath is a real thing. None of us have an excuse to be under it anymore. He's done everything he could possibly do to get us out, and it's our decision to take him up on the offer. And now is the time. Let's pray. Father God, you are good. You are more good than we can possibly imagine or understand, but someday we hope to know it even better than we do now. Lord, we are humbled that you value us so highly, and we are awestruck by how much it cost you to get us into your love and to get us into your family. Lord, we receive that today. Jesus, pray this. If you've never done it before, this is the time. Jesus, I receive the sacrifice you made for me. You bought my life to get me out of your wrath and to get me into your family, to call me a son or a daughter. You can have this life. You've paid for it. It's yours. You've earned it. You are the Lord. Be my Savior. Be my King. And show me what it looks like to live my life for you from now until I die. And let me tell other people about this reconciliation too. Let me just ooze your love to people, God. Fill me with the appreciation that I should feel for what you did. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. I know that was kind of harder than the usual stuff. I really appreciate it. If you need prayer for anything at all, there's going to be a prayer team up here. Salvations, sore backs, financial trouble, need encouragement, anything. Pop on up. We love prayer. And if you don't need that, come to a Bible study this week. And then stay and eat some food. I love you guys. Thank you.